Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. My name is Chris and I'm in a I'm in a seasonal mood today. I'm going to be talking about the colors of autumn, the um the falling leaves, the the quinces, um the your anthocyanins and anthocyanidins or and all those kind of things. So, I'm going to be looking at what is responsible for these colors of um of autumn leaves. Maybe we'll call it a molecule in a minute because it's talking about molecules, so Yes, autumnal colours is in my mind. Beth, what have you got for us? Well, um, researchers have looked at the microbiome, the bacteria living in and around um, people who haven't really been in contact with industrialised society. Um, and they've found that not only do they have a lot more bacteria, um, they also their bacteria also has the genes for um, antibiotic resistance. So what? I'm going to talk about why. You wow. think that's a recent thing, but apparently it could has been around, lurking in the genes of bacteria for some time. Well, spooky. Who mm. knows what's in those genes? Cool. Well, Stu, what are you going to do? So I'm actually just going to be talking quickly about a story from China where uh, they've actually been doing genetic modification of a new kind that hasn't been done before. They've been genetically modifying human DNA, which is uh, uh, it's going to be a long-term story, put it that way. So we'll probably come back and visit this at later dates. Okay, that sounds awesome. Well, on with the show. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Right, so it is it is the season of autumn, um, falling leaves and all that. And autumn is also the time that you you cook up your quinces and you have your your quince paste, paste, cheese, quince Did jelly. You, you make quince jelly, as well. yeah, mm. yeah. Quince has a lot of pectin. Quince. I'm mm. sure it makes a good jelly. You bake it, yeah. You can have a little like a crumbly thing or a pie, or you can mm. you just cook them up and eat them um, with a spoon, as as some of us do. Uh, but you notice that in your cookie, your quinces, when you do it right, they they change color. They do. They go pink. Beautiful yeah, they pink. go pink. Yeah. And and so I wondered why they changed color, and so I decided to to find out. Um, now the first reference I found basically pointed out how quinces, um, when they're when they're raw, uh, they're they're pretty nasty. They're rich in tannins, it turns mm. out, which make them astringent. And and this reference said that um, that when you cook them, you you cause the tannins to release a red pigment called anthocyanin. Is this is what this this thing claimed and. That's not exactly right, um, it turns out, because there is a confusion between anthocyanins, anthocyanidins. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, so, yes, two different things we need to explain them. But it gets interesting as you explore what these things actually are. Okay, so, yeah, they're, they're right about the, um, the, the tannins making the quinces astringent. A lot of, a lot of plants produce tannins, uh, and tannins, they're often used to protect them from being eaten, essentially, because they make it taste nasty. Um, so you protect them from predators and insects and that sort of thing. Um, and then, but the tannins also then will kind of degrade under certain conditions over time, which is why fruit ripens and is able to be eaten when it's raw. It's 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 nasty. And and in and in some cases you can sort of leach it out too. So I know with yeah. um with uh, acorns very high in tannin, but you can leach it out with water. 
boil it out of them, and then you can eat the I don't acorns. Eat, I don't eat many acorns. No, you don't, but no. uh, but it can be done. Yeah. Well, wine is another big example. People talk about tannins in wine, and certainly when wine ages, the the tannins turn into other things that make it less um, less um, palatable. More palatable. Or more palatable. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Mm, as the tannins age and yeah. change. Tannins break down. When you get a okay. nasty young one. Yeah. Get, yes, that's horrible. Anyway, yes. So um, so that's what's happening with um, with, with the, the actual tannins. Now, in quinces, the tannins involved, uh, they're called, there's a little type of tannins called condensed tannins or non-hydrolyzable tannins. And they're a variety called procyanidins. Cyanidins. Um, well, yeah, that's what they're called. Um, now, if you look at how you cook quinces, um, and to this I went to the I went to Stephanie Alexander, the uh, you know reliable reference that that many many of us in Australia use for cooking things. Uh, her recipe for poached quinces involves baking them in the oven for four to eight hours in a sugar syrup um, at temperature of 150 degrees Celsius, uh, along with the vanilla bean and the juice of one lemon. I'm just going to say I think if you baked anything in the oven for four to eight hours in sugar syrup and a vanilla bean, it would taste pretty good regardless of what it started it's, it's, off it's as. Probably true. Well, okay. So what what's actually happening chemically though is these procyanidins, these these tannins, um, they depolymerize uh, over you know the heat of that period of time into cyanidin. So the procyanidin is before the cyanidin, mm-hmm. um, which itself is a reddish pigment that also turns redder when it's exposed to low pH conditions. Hence the the lemon juice, which gives us that that nice the nice red color. Oh, so that, so it's the acid in the lemon juice that that makes it more red. That does make it more red. Yeah, yeah so right. they go slightly reddish or pinkish mm-hmm. or kind of a um, it's got as a band aid color, I suppose. Um, not without a good the lemon juice. I, w- no. I don't I don't want band aid quinces. No, but the yeah you need the, <laughs> the lemon juice to make it a nice a nice rich red. Although it also apparently depends on the variety of quinces as well. Okay, so yeah, now the cyanidin, it is a it is a powerful antioxidant, at least in in laboratory in, in vitro, as I say, so in, in laboratory experiments. Um, whether it's any good to fight disease is kind of one of the things people are still kind of, um, you know, discussing. Uh, there haven't been good human trials on using these kind of chemicals to to cure diseases, but some people um, sort of think it's good for you. It can't hurt to eat quinces, I guess is a, is the answer there. Um, but yeah, so cyanidin. It does. It belongs to a group of pigments called anthocyanidins, uh, where anthos means um, flower. I'm mm-hmm. looking at Stu here because he's yeah, a yeah. plant, yeah. plant guy. <laughs> um, and now, when you so these anthocyanidins, there's a few different ones. So then, when you add sugar to cyanidins, you get anthocyanins. Um, so they're basically anthocyanidins with sugar attached to them, uh, and they're another kind of pigment that you also find in many plants. Now. Um, yeah, so you find them in many plant tissues, um, and but in leaves, they're often only produced when the plant removes kind of its nutrients out for them. So at the when the leaf is dying, it pulls its phosphate and other nutrients out of the out of the leaf, and the sugars start to break down and produce these anthocyanins. Um, and so this is why these anthocyanins are these reddish, sometimes kind of bluish or purplish um, pigments, and they make you the lovely red, rich um, colors of your autumn leaves. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that contributes to a lot of the, the richness of the autumn colours. There's also carotenoids, I should point out, in the leaves as well, and they kind of are obviously a yellowy, orangey colour, uh, and they, they're always there, and they become more visible when the chlorophyll kind of goes away. You can see the, the yellowy colours. But, yeah, the, the reddish colours are produced by these anthocyanins, which are, um, yeah, kind of only produced once the leaf is, is going into the last stages of autumn. 
Um, correct me if I'm wrong here, Stu. No, it all, it all sounds very good to me. It sounds plausible? Yeah. Okay, so there you go. So that's these, um, these are the, the colours of autumn. You have the anthocyanins, which are the red leaves, of red falling autumn leaves. You have the anthocyanidins, which are your red quinces once you cook them. They're very uh, different things. They're very different. They're, they're similar. They're related. Okay. They're, um, but they are different things. They're but sim- they're, similar chemicals with slightly different attachments on them. Yeah, yeah but they're also both red. And they're also both associated with the season. So I say enjoy mm. it, um, both kinds, and yeah, um, eat and keep warm as we get colder. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. That's really sweet of you. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. So you'd think that antibiotic resistance is something that has recently occurred, right? As we use more antibiotics, oh, this is antibiotic resistance in microbes. As we use more antibiotics, um, yeah. Well, you would resistance. think, yeah, you would think that the pressure of using antibiotics would would bring about the resistance in the mm. microbes. That seems to make sense. Yeah, and that um, that without the antibiotics, there's no reason for them to evolve resistance. Yeah. That's right. It's exactly right. But it turns out that bacteria um, living on humans that have had no kind of um, contact with antibiotics at all still have the genetic capability to have antimicrobial resistance. It just needs to be activated. I suppose it does make sense because then when we have a population of bacteria and we're supposed to to, um, antibiotics, some of them will survive, implies the traits were there already to begin with. They're, They're just selected for. So, yeah, so antibiotic resistance is perhaps a natural feature of most bacteria kind of held within their genetic code. Mm-hmm. And whether they choose to express it or not um, kind of determines their survival okay. um, when exposed to antibiotics. Um, but how does it get there? I guess most of the antibiotics we use today are, come, are compounds that come from soil bacteria. So we've taken those compounds and we've used them to... Um, kill other bacteria, which is exactly what the bacteria in the soil want to do. They want to keep bacteria off their turf so they can eat all the the goodies that are there. Mm -hmm. So perhaps these bacteria found on humans that have never seen um, antibiotics um, have come in contact with soil bacteria. So they have this resistance already in their genetic code. And how did they find humans who had not contacted antibiotics? That is the interesting question. Um, This research was um, conducted in America and they asked people living in southern Venezuela. And these people had only come into contact with industrialised society, I guess, uh, very recently in the last year or so before they did the test. And they asked them if they could swab them on their skin, inside their mouths. Welcome to industrial society. We're going to swab you now. It does sound a little (laughs) bit like that. Hopefully there was a long process of consent with the swabbing. Yeah. Um, But that's what they did. And then they took the... Um, bacteria back and analysed it. Um, and these people, have, like they estimate they've been isolated from other societies for 11 
hundred years. So it's a long time. Mm. And I guess that's interesting because they might be able to provide a snapshot of what the, the human microbiome would have been at that time in, in everyone. Mm. So how our, our bacteria have changed mm-hmm. as we have become industrialized. And they found that these people had the most diverse collections of bacteria that had ever been recorded on humans. Interestingly, they found that some of this bacteria, or lots of this bacteria, have genes with the potential to encode for antibiotic resistance. There are naturally occurring antibiotics in the soil produced by microbes there, but they have never been exposed to the semi-synthetic antibiotics that people created as derivatives from those natural ones or to the ones that we've created that are totally synthetic. And we still find antibiotic resistance genes against those compounds. So that was Erica Pearson, who was a graduate student on the study, um, and she searched for and found this antibiotic resistance. Gautam Dantas, who's the Associate Professor of Pathology and Immunology at Washington University, he was one of the study's authors. He says this all makes sense when you look at where antibiotics come from. And really it comes back down to thinking about what do we define modern antibiotics to be. And that comes to the idea that what they really do is they target extremely conserved key cellular processes. Everything that basically defines life. And you might imagine that the genome and life itself has evolved to protect those extremely important processes. Many of those were likely sitting there doing other things. They were pumping out other compounds. And now we are showing that these genes have the potential to encode resistance. So when the researchers exposed cultured bacterial specimens from the people um, to 23 different antibiotics, the drugs were able to kill off the bacteria completely. But when the scientists later suspected that the bacteria might carry silent antibiotic resistance genes that could be activated Mm -hmm. um, upon exposure to antibiotics. That's one of the first things that our collaborators did is they took these E. coli isolates from these Yanomami samples and tested for resistance. No resistance whatsoever. We now know from our collaborators' work clearly that there doesn't exist any current resistance. But is there activatable resistance, right? Is there resistance that we would predict as soon as antibiotics hit these E. coli, might they now suddenly get upregulated? And indeed, that's exactly what we found. When Erica took those E. coli genomes, made expression libraries, but now overexpressing genes from the genome, she found lots and lots of genes that could encode resistance. Where does this resistance come from in bacteria? So we've already talked about horizontal gene transfer. So bacteria swapping genes Mm -hmm. with each other uh, to confer resistance. They're very clever at that. They can do it very quickly. It doesn't have to rely on long periods of evolution to get new DNA. They just kind of share it around um, and then use it when they need to. Back to the level of bacteria found on these people. We know that People in industrialised countries have about 40% less diversity um, than what were found. Scientists have also began to think that this is really important for our health, that there could be a link between bacterial diversity, our industrialised diets and metabolic diseases, but we don't really know yet. We don't really know whether it's helpful or harmful to have this level of bacteria. So that's like this massive field of research still to be undertaken. And I guess they'll unfold within... Um, the next decade or so, I imagine. And that will be very interesting um, when we do find out the implications of the human biome Mm. on our health. You're travelling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. 
So genetic modification of plants is a scientific breakthrough that has caused a huge amount of debate around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people are vehemently opposed, while others consider it a tool for agricultural advancement. And to be honest, that standoff is unlikely to resolve itself anytime soon. But I think when it comes to genetically modifying human DNA, reactions are likely to be a great deal more emotional, shall we say. And probably aligned. Yeah, possibly. In, in many ways. Possibly some, mm. yeah, definitely some uh, crossover, overlap. Um, so you might think, oh, well, is that a big problem? Is it going to happen soon? Well, it's apparently already happening. So in April uh, 2015, this year, Chinese scientists published a paper in a journal called Protein and Cell, where they outlined experimental research in editing DNA of human embryos. Um, so the work they actually did, uh, involved the use of single cell embryos, which they have tested and they're actually incapable of developing further. So they're just single cells. They're still alive, but they're single cells. They're not going to develop into full grown embryos or continue growing into embryos. No, I think, I think that's kind of how they got around the ethics that I yeah, think the, well, the cells had both been, um, the cells have been fertilized by two sperm, which means that the cell cannot keep growing. So, it, yeah, there's a chromosomal incompatibility yeah. that means that it's not going to develop any further. So they know that and they've tested all that. Um, so what they did, they took those uh, single cell embryos and used specific enzymes that can alter DNA fragments. So the concept is that the enzymes can bind to potentially disease-causing segments of the DNA and alter it to remove those problematic disease-causing sequences or replace them with something else. Um, And they actually reported their experiments were not entirely successful. Um, A number of the cells didn't survive the editing process, so it just didn't work, just killed the cells. Um, And in others, they found that the enzymes bound to the wrong segment of DNA. So they didn't really have much success with their experiment, I guess, if you wanted to look at it that way. And there was heaps of kind of unforeseen um, implications for DNA as well. Like there was a lot of other changes that they didn't set out to do um, in addition to the change that they were trying to make. So Mm. the whole thing was very un... um, yeah, they didn't know what they were going to get. Very untargeted. Yeah, untargeted. Yeah. And they, and they, yeah, they didn't, they didn't get the results they were hoping for, I guess. But I mean, that's science, isn't it? You don't necessarily know what's going to happen. Um, now, some scientists have reacted by calling for a moratorium on human embryo experimentation related to DNA editing, which is, you know, it's if something's sort of shocking and new, it does tend to make people go, "Hang on a second, should we think this through before we make rules about it?" And before we make the rules, we need to know what we're talking about. Um, the lead researcher from the uh, published paper, um, Dr. Junju Huang, has said that his lab is not going to pursue the line of research further. Oh. But the reason that he's not going to pursue it further is because there's multiple other labs in China that are pursuing this research further. So he's saying that there's basically too much competition in that field already, so he's not going to do it anymore. But that doesn't mean that other people aren't aren't looking further into it. So I think this is, you know, it's one of those stories that I think will come back and, you know, stay in the news for a while. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how it develops in the future, I think.
Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can leave a comment on our blog, which is lostinscience.wordpress.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter if you want to look for us there. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If that's not enough information, you can tune in again next week when Chris, Beth and Stuart get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.